Today's scripture reading is found in the book of James, uh, chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. It's found on page 952 in your pew Bibles. James 5, 1 through 6. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. It's a hard transition. I feel like we need to be talking about brotherly love or something. Just praying for these brothers and now weeping and howling, like a sister. My name is Josh. If I haven't met you yet, you get uh, the privilege of being one of the pastors here. And uh, we today we're going to talk about money again. Uh, we've talked about money again. Somehow I got that passage back in chapter one as well, uh, where J- James is unpacking what it means to be wholeheartedly devoted to Jesus practically. And the first area of our lives that he comes after is our money. Uh, and so the needle that I, I want to thread this morning is, you know, how to not be a hypocrite. Like, I feel like every time I preach in James, I'm just like, guys, I'm a mess about this. And that's true this week. Like, even this morning, I thought I'd kind of like got some stability and just got slayed and had to go for a walk in the park to try to get my head right. It's tough. Uh, but I also, I also want James' scathing rebuke uh, to land the way he wanted it to land. It's a blistering warning uh, that God's word has for us, you know, that we ignore to our own peril. So that, that's what I'm trying to like. I don't, if things get heated this morning, I don't say it from a place of having arrived with money. God's working me over. I have so many questions and things that I'm grappling with how to live out. So that's a, that's a caveat. The image I, I want to put before you this morning is that money is like fire. I think I have a picture. Yeah, it's like fire. The California fires are relatively close where my in-laws live and stuff. And we just we had a week with them. And so it's, you know, on the brain. Now, fire is dangerous, if you don't know that. You, you, you can't hold it or, you know, have too much of it without it destroying you. Anytime you interact with it, you have to be very careful. You know, you wear oven mitts when you cook or tongs on the grill. Uh, you make sure the fire stays in the fireplace. And to some degree, fire is necessary for life. You know, in Michigan, we have little fires burning in our furnaces all winter long so you know, we don't, like, die, like, freeze to death. But it is a liability. It's dangerous. There's risk anytime there's fire. And I think the metaphor, you could stretch it out a little bit more and say the risk increases as the fire increases. The more fire you have, the more risk there is. Like if I just had a little candle right here on the stage, we wouldn't think much about it. But if I have like this huge fire pit, Drew's probably going to come up, you know, move his guitar and stuff like that. Like the more you have, the more we're like aware of it, the more careful we have to be. And that is how I invite you to consider money. Money is dangerous. If you hear nothing else this morning, hear that. Money is dangerous. I think it's the resounding message of Scripture when it comes to money. Jesus says, beware of all greed. He, he says, you can't serve God and money. You will 
hate one and love the other. Like what we see in scripture is that when it comes to wholehearted devotion to Jesus, money is a threat. It's risky. It's a liability. If you don't believe me, look at how the Bible Project summarizes and visualizes this passage. This is, that, that's the one sentence, the danger of, or that's the title. The danger of wealth is how the Bible Project summarizes it. And then look at that picture. That's rich people getting burnt alive and harassed by moths. Like this is, I didn't draw that. Like this is people way smarter than me putting that on the internet. Uh, or to, to quote, to quote a, a, a commentator uh, on this passage, worldly wealth is an area of high risk in the battle to walk humbly with God. This is James' point. It's a warning. It's a wake-up call. And one caveat, one thing I want to address right on the front end is we might get distracted by the fact that, well, surely money can be used for good as well. Like, I make a lot of money so I could do a lot for God. Like, are there verses for that? Listen, this passage makes no qualifying comments or balancing statements about the potential good someone can do with money. This passage is solely focused on the danger of wealth. Like, why doesn't James balance this at all? Why doesn't he offer any caveats? Well, it's probably probably because doing good with money still leaves those who are rich in great danger of having their hearts twisted by their wealth. The issue isn't using money for the kingdom here. The issue is your own soul. Doing good with money does not necessarily mean it's good for you to have it. Someone can do objectively good things with money. With all the arrogance, self-importance, and selfish ambition as people who are obviously, you know, like blowing it on ridiculous things or whatever. There are passages about using like worldly wealth for the kingdom, uh, but that's just not what we're talking about this morning. So that's an important conversation to have, not what we're having here. And so if you could, like, put that, you know, in a box and say that's important, put it on the important shelf so we can hear what James has for us here today. So let's dive in. Verse 1. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. So who is the subject? Who is James talking to here? He says, you rich. Now, there are two escape routes that we might be tempted to use, uh, if you're like me, to try to find a way out, make this passage not about me. Uh, One way you might do this is to say that James is talking about non-Jesus followers, people outside the church, that this isn't about us in here, uh, this is about the bad, oppressing people out there. And listen, guys, (laughs) if I could take that line of reasoning as a legitimate exegetical move and just give us all a Sunday off, I would do it. But in my opinion, I think that would be a really sloppy treatment of this text. Like the entire book of James is addressed to the church, to Jesus followers, calling Jesus followers to be complete, wholly devoted to Jesus. Money is a theme he's already addressed with Jesus followers. And so can we say here at the end, James is just going to do this little six verse rant towards the bad people out there? Why would he do that? Why would he address it like they're there listening to this letter being read? And even more to the point, are people in the church immune to the issues that Jesus is, or that James is addressing here? Like, is there any historical precedent for money abuse in the church? Any embezzlement? Any $6 million parsonages? Or super sweet red Honda Fits? Or whatever, you know, for pastor? James is talking to the church, to you and me as Jesus followers. 
A second escape route is to say that James, you see James talking about the rich and be like, whew, not me. I'm not rich. And that might be true. You might not be rich. Because after all, how do, we, how do we define who is rich? Like, where's the line? There isn't a verse in Scripture that gives us, you know, an income amount and says, you know, over, under, you're rich, not rich. Which means there's freedom. Make all the arguments that you feel led to make. But if you have ears to hear, can I just offer you one statistic? To make it into the top 1% of the world's wealthiest people, you need to earn an income of $32,400. Like statistically, out of all the whatever, seven something billion people, if you make over $32,400, you're in the top 1% of the wealthiest human beings on the planet. Take it or leave it. I'm not going to argue with you, but as far as I can tell, that's like a fact. And maybe to make it a little, little, little more fun in this super awkward, convicting sermon text, let's play a game. It's called You Might Be Rich, inspired by Jeff Foxworthy. Did you have to decide which shoes to wear to church today? If so, you might be rich. Oh, just call and response. I did not expect that. That's great. <laughs> Don't feel like you have to do that. Did you drive here at 20 times the speed of walking in a gas-powered, climate-controlled machine, a.k.a. a car? If so, you might be rich. Have you ever had to throw away food that you purchased because it went bad before you could eat it? If so, you might be rich. So now we're probably all a little bit uncomfortable. Let me summarize it like this. James is talking to anyone who has wealth at their disposal. There might be something for you from the word of God if you have any amount of wealth resources at your disposal. Now, maybe you're in college, you don't make a lot of money yet. Maybe you're laid off, you're on disability, you know, whatever. There's lots of different variables and life situations out there. But the fact remains, for most of us, we have some kind of wealth that we're wearing charge of. And James is for sure talking to me. And if you have ears to hear, I think he might have something for you as well. And right there at the beginning, he says, weep and howl. Why does he say that? Well, this is some of the most harshest language in the New Testament. And this phrase, weep and howl, it flows out of the kind of prophetic Old Testament tradition. And it's common language, biblically, for a call to repentance. For, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, godly grief, this mourning, this excuse me, weeping and howling that leads to repentance, a, a turning away from how we were living and thinking and to the way that God calls us to live and to think. This passage is a call to repentance, to live, receive grace, and live differently. And James describes three specific dangers of money in this text, three ways that the fire of money can burn your house down. It's hoarding, fraud, and indulgence. Hoarding, fraud, and indulgence. So the plan is to talk about these three dangers of money and then spend some time considering how we might respond. Let me, uh, let's, let's dive in again. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Hoarding money... And stuff is a danger to wholehearted devotion to Jesus because it can divide our hearts. The trust 
and rely on them for our sense of security, a, a response to fear. And his language is very br- brutally honest. So in some degree, he's just being like a kind old man, just telling us what's up. Like, your stuff is going to break down. It's going to fall apart. Our hearts, houses, our cars, uh, our clothes. God help us, our electronics that are outdated after a year. But then it's also interesting that he, he goes on to talk about silver and gold corroding. Like if you know anything about you know, metal, like those are precious metals because they don't corrode. Why is he doing that? Well, he's making an important point that these precious metals might as well be a pile of rusted steel for all the good it will do for your soul if you hold it, if it just sits there. On some level, on a stone cold ROI level, like return on investment, this is just this stuff. Money and stuff is a bad investment to give our lives to, invest our lives in. You know, don't, don't get me started on how our stuff begins to own us. Like we are not the master of our stuff. Our stuff masters us. We buy, uh, to, we work to buy stuff and we work to maintain it. We should be very careful about what we own and consider if it's really worth it. You know, I mean, that's the whole theory behind the minimalism movement. Like everything we own, we have to serve to some degree. So let's at least make sure that it's like a mutually beneficial relationship. But James takes it a bit further uh, in verse three. Let me read this in the NIV. Their corrosion and their corrosion will testify against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. The idea of hoarding is different than wise sayings. Like we don't have time to do all the caveats about money. Like saving is wise. You have to do. If you're not saving, sorry. But the Bible has plenty to say uh, about that. But that's just not what he's talking about. All this talk of rot and corrosion and being moth-eaten, it shows there's this unhealthy, unnatural aspect of storing up stuff and money. When stuff and money is hoarded, not properly used, it's going to be destroyed. And James is saying it will also destroy the hoarder. There's a picture of a hoarder. I read an article a long time ago about this couple that was hoarders, and his, this guy's wife died and got buried in a pile of junk, and he didn't know about it for, like, weeks. <laughs> like, he thought she had ran away from him, but he was, like, dead under the pile of stuff. It's like the vivid picture of our stuff literally destroying us. And this is exactly what Jesus rails against in Matthew 25. This is the parable of the talents. We have a rich master who distributes resources to three servants. And then the end, when he comes back, there's one, one servant that doesn't do anything with the money. And look what, look what he says. With the, the, the servant who didn't do anything with the money, he said, I was afraid, and I went and hid your money in the ground. Do you see that? It's fear. There's a lack of trust, a lack of courage that would act in the face of risk that led to just hoarding what he'd been given. And how does the master respond? Oh, that's, that's okay. Good, good job playing it safe. At least you didn't lose any. No, what his master said is, you wicked and slothful servant. Cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. Isn't that a little harsh? It's very in line with what James is saying here. The scared guy just played it safe, but his fear, according to the master, made him wicked and lazy. He hoarded wealth that he was meant to use according to his master's wishes. So often hoarding comes from fear, a double-mindedness that says, yes, God steadfast love will follow me all the days of my life, but I need to, I need to have a backup plan. I need to have things with money and stuff. Corrosion is an image of misuse. And it gives us this devastating picture of of being in a courtroom where we're on trial to see if we can be convicted of being wholeheartedly devoted to Jesus. And all this rusted junk is paraded out in front of us and used against us. 
like fire. If we hoard it, if we hoard fire or try to have a lot of it, it will destroy us. Either because we'll run ourselves ragged trying to feed the fire, cutting down every tree we can get our hands on and leaving a barren wasteland, or it'll get out of hand and just burn our lives to the ground. The next way money is a danger to wholehearted devotion to Jesus is in verse 4. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which kept back, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. So fraud is the next way. Uh, I think it's a word that needs a little unpacking. The, the root issue with fraud is caring about money and stuff more than people. Caring about money and stuff more than people. Like this is kind of... An, at the, the, at the center of what would cause us to defraud people. And at the root of wholehearted devotion to Jesus is loving God and others with everything that we are. Love, relationships, the self-giving aspect of being a human in the image of God who exists in self-giving community within the Trinity. This, this, these truths, this the fabric of the universe reality is at the heart of what it means to be wholeheartedly devotion devoted to Jesus. And so fraud plays out when we care less about others than we do our money and our stuff. So some of us might just need to hear this word of God and pay people that you owe. Like pay them on time and in the right amount. But more deeply, how do we relate to people when it comes to stuff and money? Like do we borrow someone's stuff? Do we return it on time and in the same condition? But again, the issue here is your heart, your awareness of love for people. Fraud sees people as a means to an end. And James says in this case, the wages withheld, the cries of the people uh, that we've treated as less important than money are crying out against us. Like we're, we're that same picture. We got God as the judge hearing the cries of our accusers of, uh, of money that we held back by fraud. It's evidence against wholehearted devotion to Jesus. Because God, on the other hand, works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble. This understanding of fraud, it jives with what James has said regarding uh, the relationship between our money and, our, and people all throughout the book. Uh, which is, he talks about visiting the poor in their affliction, not showing partiality to the rich, not speaking, you know, empty words of well-wishing like, oh, and be warm and well-fed, you know, but practically meeting needs, using our resources to meet needs. Like, how do we see and love people like the world does or in light of the gospel? The last way that money is dangerous to wholehearted devotion to Jesus uh, is that it, it can lead to indulgent ways of living. That's verse 5. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fatted fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. Luxury and self-indulgence refers to the, this idea of like resisting limits, going beyond, you know, just normal enjoyment of good things to the glory of God. Like it's okay to like enjoy good food, you know, from time to time, whatever. Uh, like there's a spiritual discipline in, you know, ancient church tradition of celebration. You know, we feast and we celebrate. And luxury and self-indulgence is like moving past that, resisting limits, and moving into vice. Together, these words, they offer a picture of a life w without self-denial or minimal self-denial. 
uh, with little to no resistance to sin when it, when it comes to a promise of comfort or enjoyment. And James kind of shifts his imagery here uh, from a courtroom to a farm and says, money is dangerous because it can make us like mindless animals feasting in the rich pasture day after day, growing fat and clueless about the fact that each day, each hour brings the butcher nearer. One commentator said it, said it like this, thin, thin animals are safe on the day of butchering. The well-fed has made itself ready for the night. Or uh, Matyer says it like this, the more we surround ourselves with possessions which only minister to creature comfort, the less we are likely to cult cultivate the spiritual trimness of physique which keeps us fit in the battle for holiness. Money is dangerous because it can make it so easy to sow to the flesh. There, there are few financial li limits on our pleasure or indulgence. You know, we're not like, uh, you know, going to dra dramatically like devastate our lives if we indulge here and there in these little, little areas. So there you have it. That's James' warning against the danger of money. Money is dangerous to wholehearted devotion to Jesus. And my hope uh, for our time is that we do these three kind of moves, these three steps, is that we'd, uh, we'd, we'd hear this warning from God, we'd feel some conviction, just like a, a, a sober-mindedness that is natural when you hear a warning, uh, particularly about money and stuff. And again, if you hear nothing else, that money is dangerous. It's high risk when it comes to our souls, our spiritual relationship with God. And then I hope this sober-mindedness would then motivate us to settle into a decided, daily, progressive obedience of, of practically relating to money the way, uh, in, in line with the way of Jesus. I hope we hear this warning with, with some sober-mindedness, and then that we would, we would settle in with like a long obedience in the same direction uh, of practically relating to money according to the way of Jesus, figuring out what that means. Now, on the one hand, I don't want to negate, like, any conviction you're feeling. Like, some of us might feel convicted after this, and we might need to do something dramatic and intense, like give away a car or a huge sum of money or lots of stuff. Like, sometimes big acts might be required, depending on how the Holy Spirit's convicting us. Like, right now, the Holy Spirit might be putting something on your mind that just feels like a burning coal, and you need to go home and do whatever he's convicting you to do, give it away or whatever it is. But I think to really embrace James, what James is saying at a deep level here is going to take some practice over time with some wisdom, processing with brothers and sisters in the church so that we, we can kind of think of it like being uh, out of shape when it comes to money and stuff, like being fat and sloppy with all these bad habits. And we need to settle into the progressive daily reshaping of our lives with clear progressive steps and new habits to be different. Like if you're going to go from, you know, never having run before to running a marathon, you don't just go out and try really hard to run 26.2 miles. You settle into new choices, new habits that would enable you to become the kind of person to run a marathon. So I hope that's encouraging to you. It isn't like go home and fix all your money stuff right now. But instead, let's think clearly, practically, what are some steps we can take to obey what God says? So the first practical takeaway, I have three, is to track your spending. Maybe you're here and you don't actually know where your money is going. You know, are you a hoarder? Are you more of like luxury person? Do you have a mountain of consumer debt? So you're just not paying people what you owe them. 
maybe print out the last couple bank statements or credit card statements and just like line by line like just we already know that god loves you and died for you like you can look at your spending with honesty like where is it going and you know there's all kinds of tools out there i'm not gonna go into that you know mint or what you know wine app there's different kinds of budget or money tracking things that can help you categorize them but some of us might just have fire all around us and we're unaware of it we need to wake up and see where our money is going and start making so we can start making changes as they say in the counseling world 70 percent of the work is awareness so that's step one and are you ready for this i just got it this is a testimony i wish i could have had one of these guys come up here and give it uh two guys for sake of privacy let's call them bob and frank but uh i'd invite you to do what bob and frank did and bob had some trouble with his budget so he invited frank to look at his budget see if he had any tips because i guess frank was good at budgets and so they met together and just think about that put yourself in bob's shoes bob like opened up his bank accounts and statements and let someone else look at them and just see uh and, the, and it was cool because frank did have some suggestions that really helped bob out but in the process frank saw how much bob was giving and frank got convicted that he needs to give away more that's some like next level life on life right there like that's how we spur each other on and sharpen each other that that level of intimacy and that only works like within grace that we're not like performing or trying to earn people's you know uh, uh, approval but we're just trying to grow to be like jesus so that's the first one secondly i invite you to consider the ancient spiritual discipline of simplicity this is one of the practices we've had on a rule of life uh we've been talking about for like a year now and it's one of the ways that jesus followers have for millennia attempted to directly respond to the danger of money and self-indulgence if we're going to respond we need to like practical steps the working definition of simplicity uh, is embracing limits so that we're free to live joyfully in the kingdom of jesus maybe to reword it <coughs> for our james series it'd be embracing limits that we grow more and more wholeheartedly devoted to jesus just want to keep this before you this is like very much like an ongoing practice where we try experiments or we try different things and see how it affects our hearts and souls and relationships the five categories to consider uh simplicity uh are these there's simplicity of words expenses possessions activities and luxuries if you need an acronym to remember it i know i do winkle that helps you remember i'm not saying do all five of these all the time but just to keep them on the map and consider experimenting with them in different ways because you know some of us are quiet introverts and like simplicity of words that's like my dream you know but then we have other categories that are a little more targeted at our broken places or whatever uh, and so we, we got to experiment ways of embracing limits uh, in those categories the discipline of simplicity it can look almost an infinite number of ways infinite number of ways in our daily daily lives like in practice if you have like this discipline where we practice practice this uh, uh, discipline of simplicity the actual nuts and bolts might look very different depending on where you are or who you are one practice of simplicity is to find a way to limit the certain type of possessions i i got blown up this week by a podcast where a pastor said that part of his rule of life is that he would never have more books than he did shelf space so if his shelves are full and he wants more books he's got to get rid of books before he buys something new or maybe for you it's clothing i'm going to have this many hangers and if those hangers are full i will not buy any more clothes until i get rid of something or another that'd be limiting possessions uh, another one might be luxuries you know giving up a luxury for a period of time or limiting luxury to a particular window um, i've experienced some really sweet growth from limiting luxuries just to sabbath to like riff on another 
spiritual discipline and just using the desire to treat myself with luxury throughout the week, knowing that, like, I'm going to feast the glory of God on the Sabbath, it, letting that desire that I deny for a time uh, to be a reminder that only God can satisfy me, not, not this other stuff, not these pleasures. This is a real-life way that we can keep up that spiritual trimness, that, that commentator's British, and I like that term, spiritual trimness. Uh, we can resist being fattened for the day of Sabbath. This is James's words, Jesus. Uh, get rid of stuff that would be evidence against us. Again, it can look many different ways. And if you want help processing what a simplicity practice could look like for you, it would literally make my day or probably my month to like sit down and process that with you. And then lastly, I want you to consider giving money away. To hear a call to generosity for the sake of your own soul. This is not me asking for your money or you're necessarily asking for your money. Um, I, I know this is dangerous territory, pastors talking about giving money and stuff. Uh, and I know a lot of you are already doing this in very generous ways, and I praise God for that. Uh, but I just, we, we got to talk about it. Uh, there's a biblical precedent for giving away 10% of our income. It's, it's what they call a tithe in the Old Testament. And this is a great place to start. What would it look like for you to be able to give away 10% of what you make? What would you have to change? What would you have to give up? The tithe was pretty clear in the Old Testament. But interestingly enough, the tithe is not clearly reiterated in the New Testament. Instead, the New Testament talks about being a cheerful giver and radical generosity. So if you're already giving 10%, what does it look like to increase the percentage of your money that you give away? Because the reality is, the Bible doesn't really give us space to say, like, I'm giving 10%, so I'm good, I'm free and clear. Again, if you're not giving or you're giving less than that, like, work up to that. Like, that's a, a great starting point. And, and trust me, like, this week I wanted so badly for James to say, come now, you rich, give 10%, period, next topic. But he doesn't say that. He says, weep and howl. We have to be on guard against all greed, as Jesus says, and consider ever-growing generosity. If you don't believe me, hopefully you'll believe Tim Keller, St. Tim Keller. This is, this is a direct quote. One of the questions a Christian has to ask is, is my standard of living going up as fast as my income? It must not. The more money you make, the greater a distance there must be between the lifestyle you do live and the lifestyle you're capable of living. No Christian must live as well as they're capable of. Nobody. Thanks, Pastor Tim. Jeez. He's normally so nuanced and balanced. I don't know what happened there. A great example is, is John Wesley. The founder of the Methodist Church. He started out as a simple preacher making 30 pounds a year. I don't know about inflation. I don't know about pounds, but that's what it was. And by the end of, end of life, he was making tons of money. When he made 30 pounds, he gave away three. When he made 40 the next year, he gave away 10. When he made 70 the year after that, he gave away 40. At one point, he made 1,400 pounds in a year, and he gave it all away except for the 30. That might sound extreme or for famous Christians, but really, I think it's an example of someone trying to take this passage to heart and live like it's true. That sees the danger of money and says, I'm going to draw these lines around what I need and just freely give the rest away. To not view it like mine, but something like the master gave me to steward. I'm going to let the gap between how I live and what I make grow bigger and bigger. To close, James gives us this super cryptic verse in verse 6. He says, You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. It's a little bit confusing. 
couple of things. One, what, you know, why are we talking about condemning murdering a righteous person in the context of money? Why is it just the righteous person, like instead of righteous persons or righteous ones or whatever? And I think the, the best way to understand this is who is the righteous one? Jesus, who did not resist his own murder. And when you, when you start to unpack it a little bit, there's a crystal clear connection between Jesus' murder and greed. It's kind of, it's kind of devastating. Because there's this, this really beautiful, tragic scene in the Gospels. <clears throat> you see it in Matthew, Mark, and John references it a little bit. Where this woman comes and as an act of radical devotion breaks this jar of perfume that would have been worth a year's wages and anoints Jesus' head with it. And it says, in Matthew, it says the disciples were indignant. And John says it was Judas who was indignant because he said this could have been given to the poor. But it wasn't because Judas cared about the poor. It's because he was in charge of the money. He was helping himself to the money bag. And look what happens next. Like, look at this flow. Sometimes the headers in the Bible can break, break, break down the flow. Matthew 26. This is the end of the woman coming to anoint Jesus' body. It says, Jesus says, in pouring this ointment on my body... She has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one, this is the next verse. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment on, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Judas witnesses this extravagant financial act of devotion to Jesus, and he goes to get money through betraying Jesus. Jesus, the righteous one, the son of God, the savior of the world, was betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. That's crazy. I would never do that. But friends, this is exactly what James is warning us about. Money is dangerous because you cannot serve God in money. This is what it looks like to hate God and love the other. And Judas didn't go from being a wholly devoted person to Jesus and then betraying him for 30 pieces of silver overnight. It was over time. Hoarding, fraud, indulgences had warped his heart to the point where he was at that place. And friends, this is the warning of James. It will do the same to you and me if we are not careful. It will eat our flesh with fire. The good news is that this same righteous one who was murdered was and condemned, was murdered and condemned for me and you, for our fearful hoarding, our selfish fraud, our self-indulgent choices. And we can press into the radical generosity and simplicity in the way of Jesus because we see in the murdered righteous one on the cross that God is for us. He's our greatest treasure, that we have everything we need. And life with God, the treasure of life with God has been paid for by the blood of Christ. We're now inheritors with Jesus of all the riches of the resurrected life. So we don't have to cling to money and stuff, but with open hands, we can receive God's good gifts and then pass them on to the world in gospel generosity. Let me pray.